Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee, by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. How much should someone's upbringing affect their trial? Should those who have had disastrous lives be given leniency when tried for their crimes? On January 3rd, 1991, a woman was killed inside of her apartment, and the man who would eventually be tried for the murder would have many considering those very questions. So, if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Patricia Stewart of Hayward County, North Carolina, was reported missing in January of 1991, and when police went to check inside of her apartment, they found small drops of blood splattered on the floor and walls. Realizing there was a good chance that Patricia was either seriously injured or probably dead, they began an investigation into her whereabouts. They didn't have much to go on, so the first step was to question those who lived in the apartments around Patricia's. One of those apartments was the one right above Patricia's belonging to a woman and her boyfriend. 
and living with the pair was the girl's brother, a man named John Hardy Rose. At first, the conversation was just to see if anyone had heard anything suspicious in the last few days that could have indicated that something happened to Patricia. But something happened in those interviews that made John a suspect. And when they searched both his blue Pontiac and his sister's yellow Ford on January 13, 1991, they found a pair of nunchucks, a tire tool, jumper cables, a black sleeveless jacket, and a thermos, all of which tested positive for blood. Not just that, but the blood found on the thermos and inside of the trunk of his sister's car was consistent with the blood of Patricia Stewart and inconsistent with the type of blood the Rose siblings had. On the 14th, they asked John to come in and discuss the results of their search. When confronted with this information, John refused to talk about Patricia's disappearance. Something was up, and both the local investigators and North Carolina's branch of the Bureau of Investigations were determined to figure it out. Unfortunately, their investigation was made infinitely harder because of one very important missing factor, Patricia's body. They continued speaking with John, and the next day, in the presence of his mother, John finally cracked. His mother told him that he needed to tell anything he knew, and finally, he revealed that Patricia's body could be found at his grandmother's farm. Agents were immediately sent to search the location, but as they made the call to dispatch a search team, they were informed that her body had already been uncovered in that same location. With Patricia's body finally found and her fate sealed, investigators turned to John Rose to fill in the blanks. According to John, he and Patricia had been dating for quite some time, but she had been keeping their relationship a secret, which is why he had snuck off to her apartment on January 2nd. When he got there, a friend of Patricia's was inside, so she asked him to come back later. He did and spent the rest of the evening and into the early morning of January 3rd smoking marijuana and drinking whiskey inside of her apartment. Then, according to John's story, he told Patricia that he was done with their relationship and that he was going back to a girlfriend in Alabama. Furious and heartbroken, Patricia flew into a rage and claimed she would have him arrested for rape if he tried to leave her. That's when John snapped. Faced with her potential rape allegations, John, in his own words, quote, just went crazy and started stabbing, beating, and choking his once girlfriend to death. Once he realized what he did, he wrapped her up in a sheet and put her in the trunk of his Pontiac, prepared to drive off and dispose of her body. Unfortunately, his car wouldn't start, so he took the opportunity to go back into her apartment and clean it up for a minute, placing the knife he used to stab Patricia in a box in his apartment, while he decided what to do next. He decided to borrow his sister's car and shoved her body in the trunk of the Ford, drove off to his grandmother's farm, dug her a shallow grave, poured gasoline on top of her, and set her ablaze. When the fire died down, he returned and covered up what remained with rocks, leaves, and tree branches. With this startling confession, John Hardy Rose was arrested on January 15, 1991, and charged with Patricia Stewart's murder. During the trial, John's story slightly changed to add the detail that she threatened him with a knife first, telling him that he wasn't going anywhere that he had to jump on top of her to defend himself, and when he did, he heard a pop and saw blood coming out of her head, that he didn't remember choking her and had no intentions of harming her. The medical examiner would dispute that by stating that Patricia had been stabbed five times, 
four of which were to her body and one of which was to her head, and with such force that he was able to pierce her skull. On March 12, 1992, John Hardy Rose was sentenced to death for the murder of Patricia Stewart. Of course, once the sentence was read, the appeals began, and over the course of the appeals, some more details about John's life came to light. Details that, for whatever reason, were never brought into his initial trial. Things like his alcoholic father, who beat his mother and routinely forced John, then around 11 years old, to have sex with his mistress. And how, when he was an adult, he had a wife and three children, but lost both when he took up drugs and alcohol and had to serve a prison sentence for attempted rape. That his lawyers, one of which was fresh out of law school and neither had tried a capital case, failed to look into his past or his medical records. If they had, they would have seen that a doctor diagnosed him with severe mental illness while imprisoned in Mississippi for the attempted rape. One of his appeals focused on the fact that investigators promised that, if he confessed to the crime in interrogation and in trial, the death penalty would be taken off the table. Initially, a federal district judge agreed with this issue, but it was later overturned by a Richmond-based Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. They also denied his argument that he was economically discriminated against when the death penalty was imposed. John wasn't denying that he committed the crime and that there were many with a far worse childhood. What he was arguing was that the crime was committed in the heat of the moment and under the influence of drugs and alcohol, that he deserved a long prison sentence, not death. Despite his arguments and an appeal for clemency from Pope John Paul II, John's appeals never earned him a lesser sentence. He was executed on November 20th, 2001. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on January 4th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.